Hi, my name is Emily, and I'm here with Jennifer today to talk about what we believe the relationship is between humans and nature, and how that relationship changed over time. Additionally, we will discuss what we can learn from the people of antiquity, and how we can apply that to our lives in the future. We will first ask you to picture a situation relating to how we view the natural world. We hope to explain this by the end of our podcast. In order to do so, we will discuss two specific examples of how the people of antiquity viewed the natural world, and then compare that to present-day examples. Yes, Emily, and as you said, I'm Jennifer. Thank you for tuning in today. We believe that it is important to think and reflect on our connection to nature in order to better understand ourselves and the world that we live in. We must understand this complex relationship in order to answer questions such as, what are our roles as participants in the natural world? And are we a part of the natural world? There may not be clear-cut answers to these questions, but we become closer through reflection. Exactly. So Jennifer, when you think of the word nature, what is the first thing that comes to mind? If you close your eyes and imagine, what do you see? I see a serene pond with the reflection of a summer sunset on the surface of the water, only disturbed by the ripples of a passing fish and the sound of cicadas. Nice. I see a forest, green with foliage, ferns, and moss, and wet with mist in the morning dew. Whatever your image of nature, I bet that humans do not make an appearance. Sure, they may have been behind the scenes taking the photo, but why not in the image itself? We will come back to this question at the end of our podcast. For now, we will discuss how people of antiquity viewed the natural world. Exactly. So to start... J. Donald Hughes wrote a book called Environmental Problems of the Greeks and Romans, Ecology in the Mediterranean, which is a modern evaluation of the ecological issues that resulted from the actions of the ancient Greeks and Romans, which he believes led to their demise. A lot of the general themes that we will be talking about are within Chapter 4. This is where Hughes describes the varying concepts of the people of antiquity surrounding the natural world. That's right, Emily. According to Hughes, philosophers such as Pythagoras, Aristotle, and Lucretius thought that reason was the way in which humans could discover the underlying truths of the natural world. The Pythagoreans followed the ideas of Pythagoras, who is a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher. They lived in Samos, Greece, which is an island across the Aegean Sea from Athens, and they practiced around 500 BC. The Pythagoreans believed that the earth was one living organism, This unity of thought or closeness with nature allows the relationship between humans and nature to work dynamically in order to continue the growth of unconditional love for the natural world. An example of this view would be that the life and death of humans were equivalent to the growth and death of vegetation. Similar to seeds being buried in the ground, humans are buried in the earth when they die. The seeds flourish into plants and we thrive in our life after death. We can conclude this from the established idea that the people of this time saw themselves as equals with plants and other animals. That's really interesting, Jennifer. Going off of that, the fact that they believed the earth is one living organism also means that they thought everything shares the same elements. They believed there is one process of recycling, meaning that all things come from other things. There is no creation or destruction. Since everything is related, all things must be treated with respect. Again, this really emphasizes the fact that they viewed themselves as a part of nature, because all living organisms were equal in their eyes. This was really evident in the fact that the Pythagoreans did not eat anything living, even plants. They only ate fruits, milk, cheese, honey, oil, wine, etc. 
Additionally, the Pythagoreans concluded that all creatures have the same kind of soul, and that after death, the souls are passed on to other bodies, or in other words, all living things experience reincarnation. This is a continuation of the belief of recycling. If nothing can be created or destroyed, then that means that all souls have already been created, and when a body dies, the soul enters another body, or in other words, is recycled. In addition to what you were saying, Emily, the Pythagorean belief of reincarnation can be seen in a fragment from a book we read called A Pre-Socratic's Reader. According to Pythagoras, Fragment 1, it is stated, Once he passed by as a puppy was being beaten, the story goes, and in pity said these words, Stop, do not beat him, since it is the soul of a man, a friend of mine, which I recognized when I heard its crying. That's a great example, Jennifer. It really shows the idea that we are all one, and that all of our souls have been recycled. Since no soul is destroyed, each soul is bound to have been through life cycles, as plants, animals, humans, and all other living things. I believe this really recapitulates the ancient belief of equality among the natural world. On a different note, there is this intimate relationship between the man and the puppy, considering the word friend to describe this puppy. Our society today tends to treat certain types of animals in a specific way. This treatment of animals is shown with strong emotions, such as unconditional love and care. Such examples would be the relationship between humans and cats, dogs, rabbits, horses, and all domesticated animals humans would consider as pets. Although animals and humans are all one according to Pythagoras, as we are both part of a natural world, we do not relate our emotions to animals as we should to the natural world as a whole. There are different perspectives relating ourselves to the environment versus how we express our emotions to animals. Why isn't there an emotional drive for our environment as humans have towards animals? Just like there was this emotional drive in helping the puppy, can we as readers learn from this fragment and use the same emotional drive to save nature as well? There should be the centered view on Mother Nature just like seeking help for this puppy. For example, let's say you are walking down a path and you see another human chopping down trees. Would you have this internal and emotional drive to save the trees just like saving the beaten puppy? Sometimes we do not recognize what is in front of us until it is gone. That's a really interesting point, Jennifer. The way you describe our views of the natural world today reminds me of the beliefs of Aristotle. Aristotle was an ancient Greek philosopher who lived from 384 BC to 322 BC in Stagira Chalkidiki in the north of classical Greece. Aristotle defined nature as everything in the world outside of human culture losing this sense of oneness with nature. Hughes uses Aristotle as an example of this movement away from oneness, since although he believed in the one living system, he thought it was hierarchical, meaning Aristotle thought it was hierarchical. Aristotle states, For it is impossible to come to be from what in no way is, and it is not to be accomplished, and is unheard of that what is perishes absolutely. For it will always be where a person thrusts it each time. We believe that this goes along with the idea that nothing was created or destroyed, showing his belief in the one living system. However, when Aristotle says, it will always be where a person thrusts it, it shows his thoughts that humans are on top of this living system and are excluded from this creation and destruction. Hughes describes this hierarchy further by saying that plants exist for animals, animals exist for man, and inferior men exist to be slaves to superior men. 
Therefore, your thought that we almost give priorities to some aspects of nature over others resembles those of Aristotle's hierarchy, ranking different aspects of the natural world. It is interesting to think what may create these rankings, if it is based on the ability to move, talk, critically think, display emotions, or if it's something totally different. That's an intriguing idea, Emily. From this hierarchy, I would imagine that the way some people view themselves in relation to nature totally change. Instead of viewing nature as they would a relative, they might see nature as something that exists for their survival or benefit. Under this reasoning, humans are enabled to use nature to their advantage, creating the potential for exploitation. Although humans manipulated the land in positive ways, such as agriculture, domestication of animals, building and mining, there are consequences to their actions, such as deforestation, soil erosion, and drying of springs. Definitely, Jennifer. These are fascinating things to think about. Still going off of the hierarchy idea, I definitely feel like in modern-day society, we tend not to think of ourselves as within the hierarchy, but instead on top of it. Since we decide the roles that each organism plays in the hierarchy, we almost forget that in reality, we are not that different from them. If you think about it, we have all evolved from the same things. We all share a common ancestor in the past, whether it was from a few million years ago or a billion years ago. I definitely forget that we are no different evolutionarily from other animals, especially when I get wrapped up in school or my future or technology. I am definitely in agreement, Emily. We do, however, need to take all of this information with a grain of salt. All of the notions that have thus far been explained are examples from the works that have survived from the ancient world. It is unclear whether they accurately represent the beliefs of all people from antiquity, since these accounts come from upper-class philosophers who had a myriad of knowledge about these subjects. Overall, it seems that in antiquity, there are both moral obligations to conserve the environment as well as rational and philosophical notions to exploit it, both of which resulted from the varying societal views of the relationship between humans and the natural world. That's a good point, Jennifer. To go back a little, the idea that we as humans are no different from other animals actually reminds me of something I learned in my paleontology class here at Holy Cross. As you are likely aware, paleontology is the science revolved around the study of fossils. Therefore, as you can guess, we read some articles about a fossil discovery that occurred on the island of Flores in Indonesia in 2003, so fairly recently. Paleontologists found what they believed to be the remains of a tiny human, which they named Homo floresiensis, or Hobbit for short. They believed that the Hobbit lived as recently as 13,000 years ago, whereas Homo sapiens, also known as present-day humans, were supposed to have been the only humans on the planet for the past 25,000 years. Additionally, there was evidence that these humans were quite intelligent. However, their brains were very small, contradicting the previous thought that intelligence and brain size were correlated. This information came as a great shock to the scientific community. With the discovery, questions arose, such as how did this species of human arrive on the island? What type of human did this species descend from? Why or how did the human become so small? And what determines intelligence? Scientists are still generally debating over the answers to these questions, and there are multiple hypotheses, some of which I will not have time to discuss today. From empirical evidence and analyses, some scientists believe that the hobbits descended from very primal humans, which would change our present hypotheses of human migration routes out of Africa. It was thought that Homo erectus was the first type of human 
to leave Africa and colonize elsewhere, but if the primal origin is supported, it would revolutionize this idea. Moreover, if the hobbits did evolve from a more primitive human, it is possible that some offshoots of the Homo lineage continue to live today deep in the forests of Asia. This is amazing because offshoots of more primitive hominids, also known as Homo species, or Australopithecines, also known as primitive humans, were thought to have died out in Africa one and a half million years ago. Some scientists believe that the hobbits are actually Homo sapiens that are small due to a disease such as microcephaly, cretinism, Larenz syndrome, or a genetic disease. Reasons for checking these alternative hypotheses may result from the disbelief of the primal hypothesis. On the one hand, people can generally be slow to accept ideas that refute previous conceptions, but on the other hand, the primal hypothesis would completely change the way we see ourselves as modern human beings. You're totally right, Emily. Accepting the fact that the hobbits might have evolved from early humans means also accepting that 1. We may not be the only type of human living right now on Earth. 2. That what we know about human migration may not be as accurate as we thought. 3. That our intelligence is not a result of our relatively large brains. And 4. That evolution treats us the same way that it treats all other living organisms, whether or not we believe we are equal to them. All of these things can be difficult for people today to believe, since we often share the same hierarchical thoughts as Aristotle. In regards to evolution, all living creatures have the potential to be affected in similar ways, thus supporting more of Pythagoras' views of nature. There is also this conception that as time progresses, organisms only become more complex, fit, and intelligent, but this is not necessarily true. This really makes you question what being human really means, is it based on intelligence or morphology? Are humans just a type of animal, or are we more than that? These are our thoughts, but it is up to you, the audience, to decide for yourself. Humans do not realize how much of an impact we have on a natural world. Going back to our discussion from earlier about humans not making an appearance when we think about nature, humans have viewed themselves separate from animals and a part of a different society. Humans have become separated from the natural world because of how technology has influenced our understandings of the world and how little humans pay a close attention to nature. No matter how much we differentiate ourselves from nature, we are closely linked to nature because of the scientific fact of evolution, evolving us into human forms we are in now. Although we do not seek for nature, nature has revolved around us, and despite our ignorance about the degrading of our planet, the natural world is very significant to our lives. We hope that you have learned something from this discussion of antiquity and that it has made you think about our roles in the natural world. Next time you think about nature, remember that you are also a part of it.